Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 33 as we come uh, in our continuing study in the Psalms. Psalm 33, uh, much less familiar, I suppose, than Psalm 32. I think that's very interesting, just as as a side point. Um, We like Psalm 32 because it deals with confession and sin, and we know our sin. We need forgiveness. We love forgiveness. We know we need it, but Psalm 33 is much less talked about, much less focused on, and yet I think it uh, is just as needed. In fact, some argue that the the two psalms go together. I don't buy that argument. Otherwise, I would have preached on them both at one time. They're not connected, not that closely. And yet, we need them both. They're both here in the Bible for a reason. So let's come today, this evening, and see uh, what God has for us out of Psalm 33. And I suppose if I had to sum it up in uh, two words, they're right here in the the, uh, title. Psalm 33 tells you to have hyper-worship. Hyper-worship. That may not mean hyper in the way we think of it with our kids, but uh, we'll have to find out what that actually means as we come to this text. This is uh, not the word of David. It might be, I suppose, but we don't really know. It's possible it could be, but it certainly is the word of God and the word of this psalmist. Let's hear these 22 verses as we come to receive the word of God. The psalm begins. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Look, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we come as those who are weak, those who are sheep like Jacob. We need shepherding. Give us some more of that shepherding tonight. Give us the beauty of Christ. Call us to praise your name. 
and to trust in you all the days of our lives. Strengthen us for the week ahead by your word preached and by your word tasted at the table. We come to you as your people who hope in you. Asking all this in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe it's because I'm Southern, but there is one, maybe I have more. There's at least one pet peeve I have. Maybe there's more. You probably know them, I suppose, if you've been around me, but there's at least one pet peeve. Maybe you have it. You're in the checkout line. Walmart, Costco, Kroger, Publix, doesn't matter. You're in the checkout line. You pay. You grab groceries. And there's silence. And sinfully, sometimes, I think, and even more sinfully, sometimes I say in a flippant manner, thank you, or even worse, you're welcome. Because I'm accustomed to the cashier saying thank you, or something like that. Maybe you know people who don't say thanks. Maybe you know people who order waitresses around, who order the help around. What do you think of those people? What do you think about that when you see that in yourself? Like I just confessed to you in the checkout line. Ingratitude. It's embarrassing to never say thanks. Psalm 33 tells us that we should be a thankful people. It tells us that we should be a people of thanks. That we have all sorts of reasons for being thankful. All sorts of reasons for praising God. Why do you think you praise God? It's not just a command. Oh, it's a command all over here. But we praise God supremely because we're thankful to God. And so if you want... uh, A little outline here. This psalm breaks up into four parts. I won't give them all to you at once, but I'll just tell you, there's the first three verses give us the the call to praise, the call to worship even. And then we're going to see three different reasons why the psalmist says you should be worshiping. You really should be worshiping. You need to worship God. So first the call, then three reasons. That's very simple. We can follow that, I think. Look at verse 1. It's a very simple, basic, impactful command. Shout for joy in the Lord. It says, praise befits the upright, which is a fascinating sentence if you think about it. The psalmist opens up by saying, shout. And then he says, as you shout, as you praise God, you actually become more beautiful. Praise is fitting. It is right. It is beautifying to the godly person. It is appropriate for the Christian to be a praising person, a worshipful person. It is perfectly ideal. 
And I think if we think about our praise and our worship, we only think about, am I a good singer or a bad singer? And maybe we think about, do I like this song or do I not like this song? And that's about the extent of our concern. And the Bible says we are totally missing the boat when it comes to God's call to worship. He says, as you praise God, as you sing to God, there is something beautiful, whether you sound like a screech owl or not. There is something beautiful and beautifying. You become more beautiful. You may feel ugly on the outside, but as the Christian sings praise, as the Christian worships God, she becomes more beautiful. And I suppose we could do a whole sermon. We could do a whole Sunday school series just on verse 3 as we can look at this call to worship. Verse 3 is a fascinating verse. It gives three qualifications for worship. If this is all your church, our church had as a theology of how we do worship, it wouldn't be half bad. In fact, it'd be really good. Three things here in this verse. First, we are to sing to God a new song. Three qualities found required in Christian music. First, a new song. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't just mean that you come up with a new tune every day. It doesn't mean that what you sing in the shower tomorrow morning is a new song. But what it does mean is, as a Christian, you should have fresh reasons for praising God. As a Christian, you should be trying to come up with new reasons for singing to God. As uh, Alexander McLaren says, new songs can also remember old acts of God's power newly prized. I'll repeat that because it's so good. New songs can remember old acts of God's power newly prized. God's grace newly prized. Old dog, new tricks. It can happen. Old Christian, new songs of praise. Young Christian, new songs of praise. Second, in verse 3, Not just sing a new song, but second, we come to this finesse quality that worship Christian music, if I can put it this way, must be played skillfully. It must be played skillfully. And it does even say on the string, if you want to be technical about it, but the focus is on the skill. That doesn't mean you're a professional. It doesn't mean you're a, you're a hired hand. It doesn't mean you're a paid musician. But it also doesn't mean that you're sloppy. It doesn't mean you're content with kind of just strumming and not preparing and not planning and not working as hard as you can. It means that you're willing to do the best you can with what God's given you, the skills God's given you. That doesn't mean you're a, a songbird. It doesn't mean you can sing at perfect pitch all the time. It's not, that's not the quality. It says... That there is, however, a measure of skill. That you should do what you can to sing well. And then, of course, thirdly, finally, how are you to do it with loud shouts? Now, please don't be a kind of a fundamentalist here and say this must mean we must be screaming all the time. That's not the point. The point is not to just scream like an ape or a monkey. The point is there should be fervor, there should be passion, there should be a certain vigor about Christian worship. Nothing cold, nothing nonchalant. The great Scotsman Blakey 
puts it this way. He says, there are probably times to be calm. There are probably times to be enthusiastic. But can it be right to give all our calmness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? Can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our passion to the world? A new song skillfully played with loud shouts. There's passion to praise. So that's really the call to worship. It's a command. I mean, if nothing else, if nothing else, it should get us out of ourselves. We should not be embarrassed. Do I have a good voice or a bad voice? We should rather be singing new songs about God's old works. We should do it as best we can, and we should have passion in our singing. That's Christian worship in a nutshell. You can say more. You probably can't say less than that. That's point one. What next? Three reasons. If if you need to figure out what should you be singing about, if you need to figure out why should you be doing this, the psalmist gives three areas of God, three aspects of God, three works of God. The reasons to fuel your praise. First reason. This is verse 4 to verse 9. First reason is God's creation. God's work in creation. He opens up in verse 4. God's work is uh, God's word is upright. His work is faithful. Verse 5, he loves righteousness. He loves justice. And the point here he's saying is that God brings about what he says. He speaks a good word. He does that same good word faithfully. He loves righteousness and justice. You see all the terms here? The the, the point is that God's creation comes from a good God. We discussed this morning in Sunday school how God loves to make beautiful order that form and function go together. We see a little bit of a taste here that the world that God creates is a just world. It may not look like it right now, but it's a just world. The world that God creates is a righteous world. It may not look like it right now, but verse 5, the earth is full. If you can look for it, you will find God's steadfast love shot through the world, all over the place. His love that sticks, his love that stays, his love that refuses to go. This is the God we come to worship. And then, of course, the psalmist moves in the next uh, four verses to identify what has this faithful, just, righteous God actually done. He has made, verse 6, he's created the heavens. By the breath of his mouth, he's created everything in the heavens And then he says, he keeps the heavens, verse 7. He maintains the waters. He preserves life. I mean, think of that. You see the image here? It's almost like the waters are kind of bursting out of an aquarium, uh, you know, bowl, an aquarium. And God is kind of continually putting them back in. He's continually making sure the waters don't burst out. And he does that with the whole world. He literally does have the whole world in his hands. That means he is a mighty God. Therefore, what's the response be? Verse 8 and verse 9. 
the response is that we should fear him. The, the psalmist here wants to stagger you with the immensity of God. All the earth should stand in awe of him. And he concludes, then he says, why should you be amazed at God's work in creation? Because he can just say something and it happens. He can just command something and bam, there it is. It stands firm. It's really pretty simple. God said what he wanted and it happened like he wanted. He said what he wanted and it happened like he wanted. That means, therefore, that there is purpose in this world. And that means if you are looking for things to praise God about, look around. If you are looking for things to excite your worship, if you're feeling dry and in doldrums and depressed as a Christian, you need something to spur, something to fuel your worship, you would do far worse than just to look around. Look around. And see the beauty of creation and go from that to the beauty of the creator. Maybe to put it one last way, when you see God's work in creation, that kind of gives you a floor to your worship. Do you know what I mean when I say that gives you a floor to your worship? What I mean is that you may be downcast. You may have hard days. You may not feel as though you can praise God this morning. You can worship him tomorrow. But as long as you recognize God as the creator, you're going to have something to praise him for. There's going to be some floor of worship. There's going to be something you can look around and find. It may just be the good tasting food you had. It may be the bird, the one bird that chirps when all the others are silent. I don't know. But there's something there. There's always something there. Because you can't escape it. Second. The psalmist says we should praise God, not just for his work in creation and in providence, but his work in the history, in the politics, in the cut and thrust of the world. Verse 10 to verse 15, if you want the technical verses in terms of an outline, God does not keep himself kind of creating and then kind of letting things go. Rather, he gets into the dirty stuff of history I mean, this is what makes the God of the Bible so scary in some sense, so unnerving, so awkward. He doesn't, he's not boxed up somewhere. He's not boxed up in one part of our minds or in one part of the world. He, he's an everywhere God. And look at how he works. Verse 10, verse 10 to 12 is a, kind of a beautiful paradox here. On the one hand, God brings the nations and their plans to nothing. He messes up the schemes of evil people. You've been seeing, I'm sure, the stories the past week or two about balloons over America. If you haven't, well, surprise, there's balloons over America and they're shooting lasers and who knows what else. And uh, that can scare people. What are they? They're from China, probably. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm not a balloon expert. I don't have to be a balloon expert, though, to know that. Whatever happens, God is capable of frustrating the plans of the nations. He did with Pharaoh. What is Pharaoh's plan? I'm going to seek out and destroy those Hebrews. I'm going to send my chariots after them. I'm going to take them. I'll let them go. That was a mistake. I'm going to get them. And what does God do? He drowns Pharaoh and his chariots in the Red Sea. He frustrates their plans. And the beautiful part about it, the other side of the coin is verse 11, 
The council of the nations is done with, but the council of the Lord is forever. The plans of the peoples are frustrated. What about the plans of God? Verse 11, the plans of his heart stand for all generations. You see the contrast. On the one hand, we have our plans and they get frustrated. And the nations have their plans and they get frustrated. But God has his plan. He has his counsel. And they never get frustrated. It never doesn't do what God wants it to do. God carries out his plans in history. But part of his work, part of his plan is actually planning and plotting the uh, failure of the schemes of nations. I mean, you may think history is pretty You may think, well, whatever you think about history or about America today, you may think it's pretty bad or good or ugly. But think about what it would be like. Imagine what it would be like if nations were always successful in what they planned for. If Russia was always successful and Putin was always successful in what he planned for. What would that be like? Who knows how many devious plots of dictators that God has nicked on the ground? And yet that raises the question, what is God's plan? What is God's counsel? The plans of his heart stand for, okay, what's the plans of his heart? Verse 12 kind of gives us a clue. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen and his heritage. Now, don't, don't, please don't read this as America. Please don't misread this verse and apply it to America. It applies first to Israel in the old covenant. It applies second in the new covenant to his church. Who are the people of God that he has chosen in his heritage? It is his church. So what is God's plan? It is God's plan to choose and to save, to redeem and to restore his people. And then verse 13 to verse 15, God begins to look down. He begins to act. Why are we to praise God? We're not just to praise God because of his political workings, because of his frustrating of the schemes of dictators. We're to praise God because he can see everything. Look at these verbs here, just in this stanza. He looks down, he sees, he looks out. He observes all their deeds. You see the implication here? God knows your heart. He knows your motives, but he also knows your activities. He knows everything about everyone. He sees all the children of man, all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions the hearts of them all. The the point is that you should worship God because he knows everything about everybody. There is nothing on the internet that he does not know. There is no social media reel that he's not seen already. There is no piece of data that he is not aware of. There is no cabinet meeting that he's not in on. There is nothing that he does not know. There is no secret stuff that escapes notice. And that means he will judge them at the end of all things. That's why you can worship him. Because he will judge all rightly and true. And there won't be any errors. There won't be any corruption. There won't be any missteps. There won't be any papers that are misfiled. There won't be any documents that show up too late. He will observe all deeds and weigh them all rightly. Do you not worship him? Because he is a judge of all the earth. Finally, and um, hopefully a little more briefly, we see the last reason. First reason to praise God and worship God. He's the creator. Second reason to praise God. He's the historian God, if you will. 
And third, uh, he is the God in difficulty. He's the God who's there in, in, in difficulty. It's a weird section, I suppose, if you start it off, because it, it seems like it, it goes to the Proverbs. Verse 16 and verse 17, it, it gives us kind of a, a list of Proverbs. Oh, the king's not saved by his army. The warrior's not delivered by his strength. The war horse is the false hope of salvation. That's great. I don't know what those mean. Why is that here? It feels a little random. It's not random. It's not random at all. What the psalmist is saying is you need to praise God because he overturns conventional thinking. He overturns the usual way we tend to think. It's great. If you want to know what this is, it's Jacob overturning Joseph's plan to bless his oldest son. Because Joseph was thinking, we saw it this morning, I'm basically the king. I'm going to reward my oldest son because that's how God works. That's how my friends work. That's how the culture works. That's how we should work. The oldest gets the best. We saw, of course, that grace interrupts that. And what we have here is a picture of the king not being saved by his strength. The world looks at what's strong. The world looks at what's good, what's big, what's impressive. I mean, you just think about it right now. We come here on the high holy day of American football. There's a game on right now. And you, you've, you've made the choice, haven't you? To not look to the great strength, the great economic strength, the windfall of the big game this Sunday night. Conventional thinking says you are wasting your time. Go and eat and drink and be merry. Enjoy the game. But sometimes conventional thinking is wrong. You know, Theodore Roosevelt was a, was a kid. I, I, a few months ago, I gave a very negative Theodore Roosevelt story. I'll give you one little positive one here just to balance the scales, I suppose. When he was a kid, he was very sick. He was fragile. He had asthma. And the asthma would attack him for hours and days. And uh, he, he couldn't sleep. And he would just cough. And it would be awful. And um, he writes in a letter that he had one night been sitting up for four hours in the night. And he was just crying and coughing. And he, his father came in. And his father said, all right, Teddy, Theodore. Here's my remedy. Here's the medicine you need to take. Do you know what he gave him? He made him smoke a cigar to cure asthma. Nicotine was thought in those days by many to be effective. To be effective to cure asthma. I mean, you can picture it, right? The small kid gasping for breath. His dad comes in and says, oh, son, I have just what you need. Cigar. Preposterous. Conventional thinking. Conventional thinking. Way off the mark. Conventional thinking here. What looks strong must be strong. What looks good must be good. What looks right must be right. Instead, the, the, the psalmist says, verse, verse 18, verse 19, he says, no, 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 don't look to conventional thinking. Look to the eye of the Lord. Look to his steadfast love. Look to the one who can keep you alive in famine. Look to the one who can keep your soul from death. Look to the God who overturns your conventional paradigms, who disrupts our usual wisdom. 
You do not escape trouble because you're smart. You do not escape problems because you have all these resources and you just use the right resources and you make the right decisions and therefore you're out of trouble. You escape any trouble because God is vigilant and he is your father and he keeps watch over his children. There's an old pastor named Calamy. Calamy tells the story of a young boy who was at sea during a storm and everybody was frightened. Everybody was scared. But this little boy, I mean, he's like six years old and he's fine. He's not scared at all. And he's actually really like happy. He's like, "Eh, I'm having a good time. And everybody's like, why are you so happy? Little tyke. And he said, my dad's the pilot. My dad's the pilot. He's going to take care of me. Now, of course, the sad little truth for that kid, the sad truth for us is sometimes your earthly parents and the ones you put your trust in, that can be misplaced. However loving a, a father may be, however skillful a mother may be, there are always dangers that are too big sometimes, that are beyond us. You can't guarantee physical, you can't guarantee spiritual safety of other people. But with God, you can. With God, you have a father that you can never err in putting your hope in. With God, you have someone you can never be wrong in placing your confidence in. He has made the whole world by the word of his power, we read here. His plans prosper, and he looks upon his people to bless them. What more do you need to stir you to praise? What more do you need? God is the creator. God is the God of history. God is the one you can come to in difficulty. What more do you need? In terms of worship fuel. This is a psalm that gives you fuel. To worship God rightly. And you know therefore. Verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. Any Christian that waits for the Lord. Will not be put to shame. No one who trusts in this God. Is ever disappointed. Do you know that your time spent here tonight. Though others may say. What are you wasting your time for. Do you know that it's not going to actually be in vain. Do you understand that? That actually you're taking time out an hour or so on a Sunday night. It's not in vain. Not because you're amazing, but because God's faithful. I suppose I'll close this quote. Alexander McLaren. He says this. Hands lifted empty to heaven in longing trust will never drop back empty and hang Without a blessing in their grasp. I'll repeat it because I know some of you all like this sort of stuff. Hands lifted empty to heaven in trust will never drop back empty without a blessing in their grasp. In other words, as you praise God, as you worship God, you're not wasting your time. It's not worthless to worship your God. So why not sing to him a new song? Why not do it as skillfully as you can? Why not shout loudly and joyfully to your rock and your salvation? Let's pray. Father, you give us this call to praise you. You come to us and worship you. Or the God who makes us, you preserve us. You are the one who looks out over the nations and you keep your people. You guide us. Lord, we pray that you would do so now, even as we come to your table, that you would set apart these elements, these ordinary things, ordinary things that you made, bread and wine, basic part of our life. 
that you would use them as strength for our faith, that you would encourage our faith, that you would allow us to look in hope to that day when you come in glory. I pray that they your people. In Christ's name, amen.